What does a Christian look like? I wonder how you would answer that. And I don't mean how does a Christian dress. I mean, what does a Christian's life look like? Well, the answer is, a Christian looks like Jesus. Their life looks like his life. That is the message of our passage this evening. We're looking at Philippians, and if this letter is calling us to shine like stars, then our particular part of the letter tonight tells us we shine by being like Jesus. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. In the Church Bible, that's page 1179, in the large print 1824. And as you open your Bible, you will realize that we're actually picking up tonight in the middle of a section. Last time, Robert took us through chapter 1, verse 27, down to chapter 2, verse 4. And that passage, as Robert explained, was about standing firm. And the first four verses of chapter 2 were about standing firm in unity. That's what Paul is calling the church to. He wants to see these Philippian believers being like-minded. He wants to see them having the same love. He wants to see them doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He wants to see them serving one another and doing it humbly. That's what Paul is talking about. That's his topic. And now having said what he would like to see, he gives us an example to follow. He points us to Jesus. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. And this passage is often dealt with in isolation from its context. Maybe you've noticed that as we read it. It's often analyzed for what it tells us about Jesus' nature. And it tells us he, was both, he is both fully divine and fully human. And in one sense, it's right to look at the passage that way. It's a brilliant summary of the truth about Jesus. But we have to keep in mind why Paul is writing this. 
He's writing about Jesus to show us how we are to live. Paul talks about Jesus to help us be united. He talks about Jesus to help us avoid disunity. And that purpose is very clear in the first verse, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In verses 5 to 8, Paul says, follow Jesus' example of humility. And Paul gives us three aspects of Jesus' example. First of all, in verse 6, he did not cling to his high position. Verse 6 says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This verse is talking about Christ in heaven before he came to earth. But what does it mean to be in very nature God? It means Christ was not just like God, he was actually God. It means he had all the glory that belongs to God. He was clothed in all the splendor and majesty of God. Maybe you've had the experience of meeting someone famous. But maybe because you met them out of their normal context, you weren't really sure at first if it was really them. I've had a few examples of that when I lived up in Scotland. One day I find myself standing next to one of the Celtic players in a bank queue. And then since we've moved here, I find myself once sitting by a West Brom player in a noodle bar. And I did say noodle bar. That's a place where you eat noodles. I remember too, one time in London, we uh, met Gary Lineker in the street. Took me a while to recognize him, but Megan never recognized him. I don't know where she's gone. Uh, we nearly ran him off the footpath. But in all those cases, I end up, ended up staring at the person for a while before I realized who they were. Now, if I had seen any of them on a football pitch, I would have recognized them instantly. Why is that? It's because on the football pitch... They're dressed in all the clothing of a footballer. They look the part. In the bank queue and the noodle bar or in the footpath, they're still professional footballers. They're just not immediately recognizable as professional footballers. Now I say that because what verse 6 is saying is this. It's telling us that the Christ we meet in the Bible is not wearing all the clothing of God. He's not adorned in the splendor and majesty of God. He's a little bit like a footballer in a bank queue or maybe a singer off the stage. As we meet him in the Gospels, Jesus looks ordinary. But, Paul says, don't let that fool you. Because all the splendor and majesty of God belong to him. Before he came to earth, Christ was clothed in all of that glory. All the trappings of divinity were his. 
But, Paul says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some of you are following in the old NIV, which says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was willing to let go of those trappings. The problem is the word grasp can be very misleading to us. It could make us think Jesus didn't have divinity and he didn't grasp for it. But that's not what Paul is saying. His point is, Christ did have divinity, but he didn't grasp onto it for dear life. He was willing to lay aside the splendor and the majesty of his position. Christ never lost his divinity, but for a time he did lay aside the clothing of his divinity. And the new NIV is trying to make that clear when it says Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In obedience to his Father, Christ laid aside the privileges of his position. And instead of those things, he took on a low position. Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Notice the parallel with verse 6. Verse 6 told us Christ was in very nature God. Now we're told he took on the very nature of a servant. So without ever losing his godness, Christ took on humanness. He didn't just look like a man, he really became a man. And ever since he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ has been fully God and fully man. And he will be God and man for all eternity. So the God of the Bible doesn't just tell us to humble ourselves. The God of the Bible humbled himself. And now he says to us, follow my example. And this humbling didn't end at the point of taking on human nature. Christ humbled himself all the way to a shameful death. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, we're not being told Jesus just looked like a man. That's not what found in appearance means. It means he was found to be a man. He was recognized to be a man. He walked like a man. He talked like a man. He ate and drank and spoke like a man. He was a man. And as a man, the Son of God humbled himself even further. He didn't stop at becoming a man. He went on to die as a man. It's one thing for the creator to come and wash the feet of his creation. It's another thing entirely for the creator to die at the hands of his creation. But that's what the Son of God did. And the death he submitted to was the most shameful death of all. 
According to Old Testament law, anyone who died on a cross was under God's curse. Everyone who saw Jesus hanging on the cross knew that. So Jesus went to the lowest rung of the ladder. There wasn't anywhere lower to go. He went to rock bottom. And he did it by choice. He did it in obedience to his Father, and he did it for our salvation. His death paid for our sins. Now at this point, it's important for us to step back for a moment and remember the point Paul is making. His point is that you and I are to follow Jesus' example. Back in verse 3, Paul told the Philippians, in humility, value others above yourselves. And now in the attitude and the life of Jesus, Paul has shown us the ultimate example. It's been said that self-denial was the secret of Jesus' life. That's how we are to live. Not trying to hold on to our dignity for dear life. Not determined to prove that we are somebody special. Not getting bitter because no one seems to treat us like we're special. But instead serving. Even without recognition. Even to the point of pain and shame. So the application here is not sit back and be passive. This is not a call to inactivity and ineffectiveness. No, we're to be active and we're to aim to be effective. But we're to do it by serving. Not by fighting for recognition or applause. At this point we've looked at half of our passage. And I have to admit something at this point. It used to irritate me a lot when people talked about following Jesus' example. And the reason it irritated me was because I thought it wasn't fair. He's the Son of God. How can I possibly imitate the Son of God? And if I try, surely I have no hope of succeeding. Some of you might remember those bracelets a few years ago. Maybe it was just in the U.S., but everyone seemed to be wearing them for a while, and they said, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Has anyone seen those, heard of those? And the idea was that you were to stop in any particular situation and ask yourself that question. What would Jesus do in this situation? And then you were supposed to do whatever it was you decided Jesus would do. But my frustration was Jesus would always do what God would do. Because he is God. And so how does that really help me? Maybe you felt that same kind of frustration. And looking back at that, I realized my reaction was partly right and it was also partly wrong. It was partly right because we can't just imitate Jesus. By ourselves, we don't have the divine purity and the divine power that Jesus has. 
So if I just stand here and tell you all to go away and be like Jesus, then I'm giving you what's called a counsel of despair. In other words, I'm telling you to do something you're not capable of doing. So my frustration about what would Jesus do was partly right. But it was also partly wrong because I didn't grasp the whole picture. And so before we try applying this to ourselves, let's look at the rest of the picture. So far, Jesus' pathway looks like this. From the glory of heaven all the way down to the dust of the earth. Then to a tomb under the earth. But it didn't end there. Verse 9 says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. After the son had humbled himself all the way into the dirt, actually because he did that, the father raised him up to the highest place. This exaltation that Paul talks about was a reward for Jesus' obedience. And in fact, we're told, the Father gave Christ more than he had before. Verse 9 says he gave him a new name. What is that name? Well, we're told it's the name that's above every name. And so the only name that fits the bill there is the name Lord. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses asked God. He said to God, what is your name? And God said that his personal name was Yahweh. And our English Bibles translate that as Lord. In the Old Testament, it's always in capitals. And here we learn that the Father has given that name above all names to his Son. That's confirmed for us in verse 11. Verse 11 says we are to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's his new name. We've been called to follow Jesus' example. And now we're confronted with the fact of Jesus' lordship. It's not quite right to say the risen Jesus is greater than he was before he came to earth. How could God actually become greater? By definition, God is perfectly great. And yet, it is true that when Jesus was raised and exalted, he began to exercise a new authority. That's why in Matthew's Gospel, it's the risen Jesus who says to his disciples, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians, The Father has seated the risen Jesus far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And he has placed all things under the risen Jesus' feet. And appointed him to be head over everything. So today, Jesus is Lord. He is exalted. 
That's his present position. He has conquered sin and death and hell. And he's once again clothed in all of his divine majesty and power. And Paul tells us there's more to come. One day he will be universally acknowledged as Lord. The Father has given him the highest name, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love the way this artist helps us to picture that future day. And on that day, not everyone is going to bow willingly. But everyone will bow. And every tongue will acknowledge his lordship on that day. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved. Knees can bow unwillingly and tongues can acknowledge unwillingly. But one day the universe will declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this will be to the glory of God the Father. There is no competition between the Father and the Son. The Son loves to do what pleases the Father. And when Jesus is worshipped as Lord, the Father who gave him that name is glorified. Paul has described Jesus' future honor. The universe will bow. For those of us who bow willingly today, that future day will be the greatest day. And now we need to come back to the problem of what would Jesus do? WWJD. And we need to try and grasp how the truths of these verses help us with the command in the earlier verses. In other words, how does the fact of Jesus' lordship help us with the command to follow Jesus' example? Let me give you two very simple points to help us connect these two halves of our passage. First of all, before we can follow Jesus' example, we must first worship him as Lord. Before we can follow Jesus' example, we must first worship him as Lord. If you and I are going to have the same mindset as Jesus, we have to surrender ourselves to Jesus. There are many, many people, in fact, probably most people, who will concede that Jesus was a great teacher. Muslims, even some atheists will say, if we just listen to Jesus' teaching about love and kindness and unity, and if we put it into practice, yes, the world would be a better place. Sometimes we hear people say that and we think to ourselves, well, that's great, they're acknowledging Jesus. But actually, it's not great. We are not honoring Jesus until we bow and worship him as Lord. 
Until we do that, we're treating him as less than he is. We're treating him as interesting, maybe a good conversation partner, but actually he is Lord. And so we miss the point entirely if we hear Jesus teaching on love and we think we just need to pull our socks up and try harder to be more humble and more loving. That's back to front. The place to start is by saying, you are Lord, and I'm not. I am weak and full of sin. You are strong and free from sin. And I am in need of your mercy and your grace and your power. We will never follow Jesus' example unless we first worship him as Lord. And then second, when Jesus is our Lord, he becomes our enabler. When Jesus is our Lord, he becomes our enabler. The risen Jesus not only told his disciples that he had all authority, he also said to them, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. When Jesus is our Lord, he is with us. And he will supply the strength and the grace that we need. These lines about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, they're actually picking up God's words back in Isaiah, chapter 45. The passage that we read this morning. And in that passage, alongside this promise about every knee and every tongue, God says that those who turn to him will say, in the Lord alone is deliverance and strength. We can only be like Jesus as we draw on Jesus' resources. And when he's our Lord, all of his strength is available to us. As we come to him for strength, he will supply what we need. He's the one with the power. That's why Paul says in the passage Steve will look at next time in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, Paul says we can only work out our salvation because God is working in us. So by ourselves, we can't follow Jesus' example. But when he's our Lord, then he's also our enabler. As we look to him, he will supply the grace we need. Moment by moment. He'll give us the grace for humility, for self-sacrifice, and one day he will raise us up, just as he raised Christ, and we will reign with him. So let's ask God to pour out his grace on us. We're going to have a chance to do that now as we sing. Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Let's stand and sing this together.